Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Inaya Folarin Iman. Inaya is on um, the board of directors for the Free Speech Union. She's a columnist for Spiked Online and she's also a writer. Hi Inaya, thank you for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so I've been following you for a little bit and you know, free speech is kind of one of my, it's the only dog I have in any fight. And yeah. I, you know, I've been following you for a little bit and we following the Free Speech Union. Uh, so what got you into speaking out for free speech and like, why are you, like why do you think it's necessary right now like where did this all come from yeah so um i've been really interested in ideas in particular since i was a teenager so i'm, I'm pretty much part of the, the youtube generation and um quickly into the inception of youtube I, I i capitalized it as an opportunity to essentially you know find out more about the world and, and to um, expose myself to all of the complexities and diversities of ideas that existed. And, and so very early on, um, I became really interested in kind of uh, society and, and, and politics. And, and I pursued that at university. And I'd really hoped that um, university would essentially become a space to which that process of engaging with ideas would be um, done in a deeper, more intellectually rigorous way. And as much as I enjoyed university, unfortunately, um, in, in the area of kind of ideas and, and intellectual diversity, I didn't necessarily find it um, to be so. Um, and I tried and, and endeavoured to um, cultivate uh, my academic life to be one uh, where I did get to explore ideas deeply. So one of the things that I did, um, and this is really some of the scenarios that really catapulted me into the debate about free speech, um, was I ended up becoming involved in my student newspaper. And I remember um, I, I suggested to the, to, write, to the writers in my student newspaper, if anybody wanted to look at this particular movement in, in Britain, I don't know if it's in America as well, or in Canada, I'm called uh, Decolonize the Curriculum. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's essentially that this, this movement that um, claims to be working to broaden out the curriculum and, and in, invite different speakers and, and, and um, intellectuals from across the world. But what I personally found it to be was a deeply kind of um, ideological movement with a political agenda to essentially deconstruct um, all of what is valuable and important about Western, Western society. I mean, they consider objectivity, uh, everything to be uh, Western imperialist constructs. So I, um, as, as part of the student newspaper, suggested that we examine this um, and it caused a huge backlash at university. Everyone was like, why would you question it? You know, it's, um, you know, by doing that, I'm inviting white supremacy and all of these things. And it was a really stark moment where I realised that um, even basic kind of questioning of dogma and then kind of dominant sensibilities, particularly on campus, wasn't something that was welcomed. And I knew in that moment that freedom of speech um, was massively under threat if this was the next generation that will be taking control of our institutions. Okay, what what timeline was this? So this was, um, it was as, as recently as uh, 2018. 2018. Yeah, so yeah, I only left university last year. Um, yeah, so I, um, I, I got involved in free speech, um, the free speech movement in Britain very, very quickly. I started hosting free speech debates on campus. Um, I, I used to work for an organization called Index on Censorship. Um, and, then, and then, yeah, I, I essentially became uh, a free speech activist from all of Yeah, I mean, the reason I asked the timeline is because I had such a bit of my background. I came back to Canada in 2014, and I'd been away in war zones for about 12 years. Yeah. Social media wasn't a thing when I left. Don't really have it on war zones. They don't want you to, you know, tag yourself on a Facebook post saying, "Here, I'm here in like Afghanistan or something." Right? Yeah. Know. So I come back, and like even then, I see it. 
one of the one of the starkest things I saw was at uh, University of Missouri. There was a protest going on. There was a journalism professor, a professor oh. of journalism. There was a student journalist covering the protest, and the journalism professor you could hear on mic saying, "Get some muscle over here and get this guy out of here." Wow! And, and, I was, and that to me, I was like, "What's going on?" And that's when I started looking into this. Mm. Um, so that that culture you mentioned. Uh, I mean, I've been seeing it for a while now, and but now it's it's like out in your face. Like I, I think it was the Smithsonian; they took it down, but they had that graphic of what is white supremacy culture, right? Mm. And they talked about things like objectivity, you know, punctuality, basically uh, professionalism. It is. It's incredibly demeaning. Yeah. Like I, I don't. I, a lot of these people are acting in good intentions, but if you are not paying attention to the social consequences of what you're promoting, then I, I have to question people's intentions to suggest that objectivity, punctuality, individuality are somehow Western supremacist constructs. I mean, that really reveals such a. Uh, de demeaning and low view of, of people that are not white if you think that i want to compare the uk with the us and canada because canada we have we have a constitution but we're a parliamentary system like the uk and i mean our independence from the uk is you know huge, hugely different than the united states it wasn't a open conflict but our rights for free speech aren't guaranteed the same as in the states whereas in the uk you guys don't have a constitution but you had a culture of open debate and free speech. I mean, for Christ's sakes, Milton and Mill came from the UK. You know, like, uh, but in the US, I mean, the founding fathers, you can talk about them and what they wrote. And, you know, they were building off the Enlightenment. But it got wrapped up into law. And I see pluses and minuses for all three of those things. Like, living in the UK, how do you compare like at least the US with the UK, like do you think it's better having it in law or better having it as more of a, you know, in the culture that everyone wants open debate? Yeah, so um, yeah, there are really, you know, important differences, as you mentioned, we don't necessarily have a constitution, we have something called constitutional conventions. But regardless, there is a very long tradition of free speech and liberty, as you described in terms of John Stuart Mill, Areopagitica, obviously the Enlightenment, but far back from that in terms of the British Bill of Rights and, and um, Magna Carta. So that tradition is deeply embedded into, into British culture, but obviously similar as we're seeing in Western society more broadly, um, that has been eroded and, and that's been challenged. Um, I, I think that I think that there are positives and negatives. I think obviously, you know, having a constitution that protects, protects that and guarantees that makes it more forthright when it comes to people attempting to challenge it. I mean, this is your uh, inalienable right um, as, is, as, is, as it is written. And I think that that is very powerful. But I guess um, the British system for me also works because um, we have to continually make the argument. And I think that that is really important. I don't think free speech um, necessarily... Uh, should just be assumed to be a given or assumed to be something that um, is a, just exists. I think that people deeply need to understand it. They need to um, uh, create a culture and, and, a, and a, a society that cultivates criticism and, and appreciates that, that robust and open debate. So I think not necessarily having it um, written down in a constitutional mechanism still enables um, people to be able to make that case and for that argument to be won. But unfortunately, you know, as the reality we are seeing, you know, even though America has a constitution and Britain doesn't, we're still facing similar kinds of challenges to free speech, whether that is on campus, but even more society, uh, societal attitudes more broadly, whether that is in the media and institutions itself. So I think that 
even having a constitution doesn't necessarily protect it in relation to um, how it might play out in, in people's perhaps authoritarian attitudes on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with most of that. And I I wish there was a, a way you could do both. And I think you should do both because the constitution is great. The, the U.S. First Amendment, as far as I can tell, is the best law out there to protect your rights of speech from the government. Totally agree. But it's a law like it's an amendment right in the name you can change that if the population wants that law changed there's a process to go through it and the law can be changed so i think you need to have that firm law but at the same time you need to inculcate in the population you know the the free speech argument i always i I find like I, I like what you guys are doing. I like what a few other people are doing. Um, I was lucky enough to get an early copy of uh, Jane Lindsay and Helen Pluckers's book, and they talk about it in the last chapter. You know, it's not your, it's not my right to blab. It's your right to decide what you get to choose to listen to. And that's where the free speech argument should go. And I think you have the strong law, but at the same time, you let people know that it's, it's you know the harm that's done to a society when you start censoring is far greater than the harm that's done by bad speech. And it, oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, and, and this is some of the really important um, arguments that are fundamentally being missed from the conversation. I mean, the way in which free speech has been framed as necessarily a mechanism to spread hate to me reveals such a shallow um, and fundamentally, you know, a fundamental misunderstanding of, you know, what free speech has meant historically and, and actually who has um, benefited from free speech the most. You know, free speech is not, um, if you are a liar, if you're a charlatan, if you are um, a, a tyrannical individual or organization, you're not, not going to want free speech. It is generally speaking, as as I'm sure you'll know, that the people um, who are in the minority, whether that is ethnic or sexual or even ideological minority, who benefit from free speech, to be able to kind of articulate their grievances, their interests, challenge the structures that are maybe subjugating them, is often um, the least powerful people that, that benefit from free speech the most. And, and as you were describing, many of these arguments in terms of what actually um, free speech means and how it plays out um, are, are really being missed from the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, okay, I do little things here and there, but I did something and I said, you know, we have an example of this. You can, well, I actually have several, but we have like a really good example. If you look at the Arab world, so the Muslim Arab world, from the end of the Golden Age, or even just slightly before, they stopped the enterprise of free inquiry. The Mongols came in, sacked Baghdad, all that was destroyed, and then, you know, it came into Europe from different, you know, different roads. But because that enterprise was stopped, once the Mongols left, they never went back to go get that information back. And you can look at the Arab world now. I mean, how many Nobel Prizes came out of there? Like one innovation, just one innovation that came out of the Arab world from after the time of the Golden Age. You know, there was some Mm. good poetry, there was some good art, but there were no advancements, nothing. And and you can see that society. Yeah, absolutely. You know, without free speech, how do you innovate? You know, if people um, are existing in a climate and a culture where they don't feel that they can... uh, express challenging or controversial or provocative um, ideas, the ideas that actually force us to question ourselves and, and to re-understand and reorganize, then you are essentially stunting the intellectual capa- um, capability of a society. 
you know, I think that we can see it. You know, it plays out. The societies that have the most freedom, that have the most free speech, other societies that are um, have, have the most um, human innovation and expression and expansion. Um, there, there's only one trajectory <laughs> where where people are traveling. <laughs> you know, we generally speaking, we're not traveling to the places on on mass at least um, that are trying to uh, limit our capacity to to be able to speak. And, and so it, it speaks for itself, I think. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the decolonization stuff, and I don't. I mean, I'm, I, if you remember the Hong Kong protests back in December, at least, um, yeah. Because I mean, they're they're it's much worse now with China's done. But you saw it in the U.S. You saw I saw it in Canada. I don't know about the U.K. Like the the protesters were holding up the American flag and the British flag, and there were people in the West who were saying, "Well, your democracy is great, but if they take it on, they're being colonized." It's better not to be colonized. And like that whole, okay, you know, I, I was born in India. I grew up in Canada. Both those countries were colonized by the British. You know, I could talk about the harm that colonization does. But it also did some good. And, you know, Western ideas, they're not Western. They're universal. Like you can trace them back for thousands of years all over the world. Yeah, I agree. But to say that to live in subjugation is better than, I mean, oh, it's better to be colonized by these people and not those people because these people aren't white. Like, I, I don't get that. And I don't get where that idea of this is not for you because you're brown. Like, I, I find that incredibly insulting. Like, I work in IT. You know, I, you know, like, science is not for me. Like, excuse me. Yeah, so there's so many, with the whole decolonize the curriculum, whatever, movement, there are so many intellectual flaws to it. It's unbelievable. One of which, you know, as you already alluded to, it kind of proposes a new form of essentialism. You know, we are trying to challenge the notion that being brown or being black or whatever has, um, you know, is this kind of fixed, narrow um, identity, a kind of stereotype. But this is what they're doing is actually creating a new form of stereotype. This idea that, you know, being a... Uh, African or, or Indian or whatever that, that may be, uh, means that uh, you uh, are somehow uh, unable or, or shouldn't necessarily be engaging with many of the ideas that we so um, heavily enjoy. You know, that, that, that is um, in, in some ways a very uh, a reimagining of many of the actual colonial ideas that they would argue against, that, you know, this kind of noble savage is better to be kept in, in the, you know, subjection and, and, and ignorance. It, it, it's really, really astonishing stuff. But on top of that, Again, it, it, it's just factually incorrect. As you describe, um, it's always been a symbiotic relationship. Now, of course, there were points historically that I, you know, critique heavily, you know, whether that was colonialism or, or what have you. But societies um, in Africa and Asia in Europe have always kind of mixed and there's always been cross-cultural fertilization and understanding. So as, as I said, um, I completely agree with you. These ideas are often universal and you can find... Um, many of the uh, echoes of these ideas in many spiritual, religious or intellectual traditions in many other parts of the world. So I think it's it's both a demeaning misund um, idea, but it's also just fundamentally and factually wrong. And the last thing I'll say about it, and I, I, I can't speak for all of these people, but I do often wonder how many um, of the people that argue this most vociferously have really spent time in other parts of the world I have people contacting me um, that, you know, traveled to the West um, 
from, you know, former communist states and, and saying, you know, it's very weird how we're all of a sudden um, affirming and defending uh, the reduction of free speech. You know, I, I spent a year living in Morocco and my family and my heritage is, is Nigerian. And, um, you know, when I speak to many people that, that live, that came from other parts, um, huge gratitude uh, and so happy for the opportunities and, and freedoms that they enjoy here. And so I do often wonder, many people that argue against free speech so strongly, how much time have you actually spent in other parts of the world? Yeah, I, I don't get that either. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that I've been traveling since I was a little kid. Um, mm. you know, and then my work when I was overseas, I traveled everywhere. But you know, I worked in Sudan. I saw how people lived oh, there. I, oh, was, wow. I was in Haiti after the earthquake. You know, like even, even under Aristide and things like that, like how limited they had and you know i come back to canada and your articles about how air conditioning is sexist it's like come on yeah is there, you know can we well, find sorry go one, ahead. Of, no, it's fine. No, one of the things i just think i mean i i don't know whether to be um ha somewhat kind of happy about it or despairing so happy in so far as is this how much is this the benefits of freedom you know is it is have we got to a point where we have you know moved so forward as a society that we have to make up the most minutiae and and benign things to get offended about or is it despairing that you know we are also at the same time i always mention this a few months ago elon musk launched a rocket you know into space i mean we are really a society as a civilization on the cusp of so many incredible technological transformations and all we can talk about is whether air conditioning is sexy you know am I, should i be happy about that or should i be despairing I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but it's okay. I mean, but it's like the the whole thing. Like I've been reading. I, like I said, I came back in 2014. I didn't know what was going on. Um, and then I started a couple of years ago. I really started reading like, the critical race theory stuff. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I started reading it, I'm like, this is insane. But you you know you mentioned you got to school last year. But I look at okay, I, I can't remember if it was Cambridge or if it was Oxford. It was a big university in England. You know, okay, get rid of the classics, get rid of old white men. Um, I remember one of them a couple of years back wanted to get rid of Shakespeare. You had mm -hmm. that at Yale or Stanford. They got rid of the classics department. I agree with bring in other traditions. You know, uh, there's a tradition of Stoic philosophy in India going back over 2,000 years. Bring that mm -hmm. stuff into universities. Let people teach it. You can teach that as part of the classics department. It's, just, you know, it's, it's the same thought. If they took it from the Greeks, they expanded on it. Like, why not add that to your classic expert? I don't, like, I, I read it and I see what they're saying, like, you know, decolonize, deconstruct, dismantle. But there's no talk of adding anything. So when you were in school, like, did anyone come up and say, here, can we add this to the curriculum? Or, you know, can, was there any constructive stuff done? Or was it all just take this apart? You can't listen to this. You can't talk to this. Well... Yeah, I mean, I personally find that it is, it's not really productive and constructive. And I think we can see that, you know, in relation to the recent debates and protests that have happened. You know, a lot of people talk about educate yourself, you know, do the work, do the reading. But the people that they suggest are a very specific and narrow set of people to actually read. And many of those people, you know, are, are, I would, you know, wouldn't necessarily argue, you know, Robin DiAngelo, for example, are the most kind of intellectual nuanced thinkers. Um, but I mean, they, they don't suggest uh, people like uh, uh, Thomas Sowell or, or like Larry Elder, you know, Glenn Lowry, many um, uh, 
uh, African-American thinkers at the moment who fundamentally challenge many of the um, orthodoxies around race that we have um, today. So a lot of the time, again, you know, as I said earlier, I think uh, it, ultimately I find it to be deeply ideological. Um, it's not um, a critique of maybe a, a very narrow canonical uh, uh curriculum it is essentially let's replace one uh quite narrow curriculum with another it's not actually trying to broaden it in a meaningful sense and i so i i don't generally speaking um support it but there's another thing i'll say i think it might be different in america um and, and canada but ultimately britain is in europe you know so the idea that we can't we shouldn't have a eurocentric curriculum i find quite bizarre you know, if I went to Africa, like I would hope that if I went to an African university, I'll be learning more predominantly about African writers and thinkers and the history. And I, so if I go to Europe, presumably, predominantly, you'll be learning about European history and, and the kind of the, uh, the, the, the history of kind of European ideas and so on. Of course, let's bring in other ideas and, and you know, world history and different thinkers. But I don't find it inherently problematic to be in Europe and learn predominantly about Europe. Yeah, it's the same thing here. Uh, was, okay, and I get this from my father. I, I remember I was I was in my late teens, and it was around Christmas time, and there was a friend of his in there, and one of his like the guy who did his deliveries came in and said, "Ah, oh, it's my last delivery before Christmas." My father wished him a Merry Christmas. You know, family's Muslim. His friend, I think, was Pakistani or Indian or whatever, and said, "Well, how can you wish him a Merry Christmas?" He's like, "Because we're he goes, we're in a predominantly Christian country." He's like. Muslims respect Jesus. It's his birthday. I just wish the guy a Merry Christmas. Like, what's the big deal? And and this attitude, and again, I, I, I think it's got to do with education, uh, that you hate your own culture. Like, I've never seen that anywhere except since I got back in the West where everyone's taught, to, like, you know, Brits or Americans or Canadians or whatever, Northern Europeans, they're taught to hate themselves. They're taught to hate their culture. Or you're taught that that culture's kept you down and will always keep you down. Mm. I, I don't see how that leads towards social cohesion at all. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think this is unfortunately, you know, so much of it just isn't reflective. You know, even if I might, I may or may not have agreed with some of the uh, the goals, you know, we can look and see that that isn't productive, that isn't constructive. I mean, you know, as you were just talking about, um, a lot of the things that they describe is a sense of, you know, alienation and a feeling of otherization within society. But I'm saying, but it, I find it bizarre because at the same time, they will cultivate a sense that they will never belong. You know, they'll, they'll say that, you know, um, society is, is essentially against them, that the, the cards are stacked against them. There's nothing that they can do about this. So how can you feel that you belong in a society? How can you feel like this country is your home and that you want to, um, you know, contribute to making it more positive? whilst all you have to say about it is negative and, 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 and demeaning and, and destructive things. I think that will ultimately, obviously, lead to a sense of alienation from the society you are living in. But on top of that, I think it's such a, and I, I mention this a lot, I, I mean, it, I, what is being taught could not be more um, disempowering and demoralizing to a young generation of people, particularly one that is growing up in a society that could be better, don't get me wrong, but the fundamental opportunities that um, we enjoy is incredible like and and the strides we've made not just you know in terms of freedoms um over historical time but in regards to race relations is huge you know i mean, I mean 
the, the triumph in terms of laws and, and attitudes has fundamentally transformed the last 30 years. So, so now that we are now at a point where we can perhaps say, actually, we've done pretty well for ourselves in terms of, you know, a cultural and social and ideological shift. To now say society could never have been worse it, it, it's completely divorced from reality in my view yeah no, i i don't know where they get that from but, okay um the critical race theory stuff and again mm. this is like this, for me it's the education this is where a lot of the attacks on speech coming from but they you know north america we took enlightenment from the uk and from france but how are like critical race theory came out of u.s law they came out of U.S. law schools. It was dealing with racism in the U.S. based on the legal system. How the hell does that get translated over to the U.K.? <laughs> I mean, one of the things America, you know, has been worried about whether or not China is going to be undermining it in relation to global cultural hegemony. But I think the Black Lives Matter protests has demonstrated that America is definitely in the game when it comes to cultural exploitation. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, a lot of us have been blindsided by just the, you know, importing of the US racial cultures into the British situation. And there are so many, there are some similarities, but there are fundamental differences. I mean, in, in Britain, our, our police are perhaps the most demilitarized police in the world. They don't even carry guns. You know, they're super friendly. Um, they're really kind of about community policing and so on. Obviously, the, the majority of the, the black people in Britain came in the last 30, 40 years, in the post-war migration years. There are, there are some descendants that um, came here hundreds of years ago, but most of them would have married within English people, and so their, their, their children essentially would be, be white at this point. Um, so the overwhelming majority of, of black people came. So, you know, this whole narrative that's been imported from America does not speak to um, at all what's going on in, in Britain. I mean, I, I saw a recent thing where um, some some protesters in the UK were shouting, hands up, don't shoot, to a disarmed <laughs> British police force. And this, this is the kind of absurdity that we're seeing. And yeah, it, it's really astonishing. I mean, another thing that I just find really interesting, you know, in America, we've been hearing this whole thing about defunding the police. In Britain, I mean, the left in Britain has been talking about the police being underfunded for the past, you know, 10 years. And now they're all of a sudden saying defund the police. Yeah. It's, it's You've got to laugh because it's just, it, 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 it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. No, it's, okay, same thing in Canada. I mean, as soon as the protest started in the States, blah, 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 Canadian police, you know, uh, killing too many people. And you look at the statistics. We don't have as many statistics. Uh, they, they like hamstrung the, the, the stats Canada. It was 450 shootings between 2000 and 2017 or 450 people were killed by the police. That's half of what the U less than half of what the U.S. does in one year, over seventeen years, and our government's saying, "Oh, well, the police are hunting people." Mm. It's like <laughs> it's a little ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, a similar thing in Britain. You know, we, one of the things that they've been mentioning is this whole idea of people dying in police custody. According to their own statistics, a white individual was twenty-five percent more likely to die in police custody than a black individual. Like it is crazy. From all of the statistics in, in Britain, from education to, to to wealth, the picture is incredibly complex, and, and we really have to challenge this this widely held idea that all racial disparities are exactly a result of racism. There are many different factors that contribute to the um, nuances and complexities in relation to racial inequalities. And again, all of this is being simplified 
partly because of what you were um, talking about in relation to the critical race theorists. I mean, they literally say that racism is is um, embedded in every facet of society. I, I did an interview recently, and, and the, a critical race theorist was was on the panel with me, and she she said that we have to think of racism uh, as the air. That's literally what she said. That's something that we breathe and live uh, every single moment of our day, and there's nothing essentially that we can do about it. And I just think they have no positive vision for the future. You know, what vision, how, how do we, if, even if that was true, which I don't believe it is true, how do we overcome that? You know, all it is is a kind of permanent revolution. It's a kind of permanent reorganizing of society in their own image. That, that is not a vision for social cohesion, for freedom, for, for progress. That is a vision for social racialization and a kind of power game, in my view. Yeah, and I mean, and it's a cult. Like, I, I, I saw it. I, I never spoke out. I was not, I'm not a, you know, an activist of any kind. But, but when I came back and I saw how people were being, like how Ayan Arsia Ali was being treated when she spoke out against Islam. She was one of the first people. Uh, even someone like Mariam Namazi. Um, you know, I should, uh, you know, and then, or Majid. Like he, he's a reformer. He's still a Muslim. You know, being called things like house Muslim. And then I look at the, the race, uh, like all the talk around race. And it's the same tactics to shut people up. So you'd mentioned Glenn Valerie and Larry Elder. Um, but I mean, in the UK, I'll take uh, Trevor Phillips and Priti Patel. Mm. You know, you take like Glenn Lowry or Ch- Thomas Chatterton Williams. Uh, I know he's in France, but uh, Camille Foster, uh, Camille Foster, excuse me. Uh, any yeah. of these people, they get the worst insults hurled at them because mm. they're the wrong type of black person. Or Priti yeah. Patel, like, Disagree with her politics, I don't care. But to, to have the Guardian draw her as a cow with a nose ring, or I can't remember where it was with Trevor Phillips, you know, they're calling him a coconut and he's not black enough. It, it's, it's the same tactics to shut people down. And it's, you know, per, you know racism for progress. I, have, I mean, it's the only way I can call it. Like, I, I don't know what the hell it is. Like, it's, it's insane. Well, this is what I was saying earlier in relation to when we were talking about, you know, objectivity being a whiteness or whatever. What what we've seen, and I think I really believe that the um, the woke radicals, so to speak, have really overplayed their hand because they've um, really revealed the absolutely dehumanizing ideas that they have in relation to ethnic minorities. You know, they, they see them as essentially just political pawns in order to push forward a particular, you know, ideological agenda. If we, progress to me would be welcoming ideological and intellectual diversity amongst black people, Asian people, what have you. That I would I welcome black conservatives, black you know, leftists, blacks, all sorts, because that shows that people no longer have their politics specifically defined by their racial interests. I think that's a positive thing, that's progress. And for me, racial essentialism, racism, I fundamentally oppose it wherever it comes from. So, you know, I, I don't accept this idea that, you know, because you believe that you are acting on some virtuous or moral superior uh, values, that that means that you have the green light to use racially um, derogatory terms. I mean, yeah, as you described, coconut coon, you know, this is disgusting. And, and you were saying that, you know, if you are a, a black person or an Asian person who feel like they belong, who feel patriotic, who feel proud and happy and positive in their life and don't believe that their racial identity is the most important or significant thing about them, that that means that you are somehow inauthentic. And so, you know, th- these categories no longer become um, as well, as Martin Luther King famously said, just the colour of you know our skin. Now they that they, they are imbuing them with 
um, they are imbuing them with such significant meaning, a set of prescribed behaviors, attitudes, dress sense, speech in order to be authentically black or authentically Asian. Um, that That's not progress for me. That's a new form of racism. That's a new form of racial essentialism. Yeah. Well, OK, it's I don't know if it's a new it's an old form under, you know, with with. It's got nicer clothing on. That's all it is. They've dressed it up in nicer terms. But it's the exact same thing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard. I mean, you can look it up in the States. Uh, they used to say uppity. Like, so, you know, and they would, like, uppity black people, but they would use, like, the N-word, right? Oh, mm. they're getting, they're acting like they're betters. And this is the same stuff. I mean, there, there's a book called Acting White. Um, came out in 2013, I think. And yeah. I mean, there's sections in it on how Obama was dressing white and talking white, and you shouldn't do that. It's the same yeah. thing as racist saying, oh, you're uppity. Like, no, but I, the reason why I say it's new, and I, I, I totally know what you mean in regards to, you know, it's an old form dressed up, but it's a kind of alliance between a so-called anti-racist and perhaps white liberals, so to speak, and the power structure. So I think that the alliance and the way in which it plays out, I think, is kind of new. You know, other than kind of old form, you know, kind of racism of like you know, the kind of white supremacist ideas in the kind of traditional sense. This is, you know, now framed as progressive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Look, I know you're busy, so I just wanted to give you a last word. If you wanted to give people like a way to you know, embrace free speech, like if you want to give your best sales pitch for it and then let people know where they can get a hold of you, uh, where they can follow you. Please go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that free speech is more than just like the right to express your opinion. And I think that um, people just think it, as I said earlier, it's just this kind of random thing, you know, that's kind of convenient that we have. But I, essentially, you know, the question is, why would you want to know anyone else's opinion? And the reason you'd want to know someone else's opinion is because we could be wrong. Uh, as John Stuart Mill says, you know, we are not infallible. And there's so many things that we have been wrong about historically, and I'm sure there's going to be many things that we are wrong about presently and also in the future. And the very process to which we can correct that is by having an environment as open as possible to exchange ideas so we can challenge each other, so we can find out, you know, the things that someone else might have that we might not have. And that also means people that we fundamentally oppose, fundamentally dislike. You know, as much, there's many ideas, even even these, you know, woke people. Um, I'm happy that even though I fundamentally disagree with them, I'm, I'm happy that they can speak so I can know what I truly believe. And, you know, these are, you know, some of the most basic, obvious arguments in regards to free speech. And, you know, if we do meaningfully believe that, then I think we can't just support it. I do believe that we have to, unfortunately, in this perilous climate, to be active defenders of it. Oh, my God, I, I sound like those woke people that say, <laughs> can't just be, can't just not be racist, you have to be active. <laughs> oh. In some senses, you know, in this pitch, I would say it's somewhat similar because it is hugely under threat. And I think, you know, if you if someone's trying to censor you, if you've said nothing wrong, do not apologize ever. You know, stand your ground. It's your fundamental right. If you have, you know, children or grandchildren, speak to them about free speech, engage them in these ideas. Um, I, I think that we really have to be much more proactive now in, in cultivating um, that climate and cultivating a culture of critique if we are you know, meaningfully going to withstand the onslaught um, that, that we are facing um, at this moment. But things are looking promising. 
you know, I think a lot of people are, are waking up to cancel culture. They're waking up to what's happening in the universities. And I actually think COVID-19 and, and the consequences of that even potentially could be a, a space for huge, you know, new thinking. And so every action in some ways has an equal opposite reaction. And I, and I really hope that, you know, what we've seen over the last few months in regards to the, the destructive censorship, um, it will really be a huge wake up call to a lot of people that we really need to defend our fundamental um, values and, and, and principles. So yeah, that that's my my closing speech. And, and please find me on Twitter. And I Falaren, that that's the best place to find me. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll, I'll put all the links down. I'll put uh, like links to Free Speech Union and stuff. Well, thank you very much, Anaya, for coming on. It was great talking to you. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you. everyone for listening. <laughs>